My name is Mark Vrogup, and I am Gomer. The scandal of Hosea is my scandal. I was the one who played the whore. I was the one who's used God's gifts and fed them to the idols of my heart. I was the one who ran away, and I was the one that Jesus bought. He rescued me from the vanity fair of my idolatrous ways. Gomer's story is my story. That's the lens that we need to read the book of Hosea. We need to see the book through the perspective of this story is not just about Hosea, and it's not just about Gomer. We need to feel what this text wants us to feel. Last week we started a six-week series on the book of Hosea, an 8th century B.C. prophet who writes to the people of Israel. For some of you, this book is never a book that you've read or studied. And I hope that you will come to love Hosea in a new way because you're going to see the gospel displayed over and over and over. This morning, I hope you see yourself displayed in this book. Hosea invites us to feel the weight and the beauty of God's grace. And then for that heartfelt examination of the text to sort of carry us along all week. The aim of our study that we're calling Scandalous Grace is to see this, how God gives grace to wayward people because he's God. In other words, similar to our study of Exodus five years ago where I said that the story of Exodus is not about Israel, it's not about Moses, it's not about Pharaoh, it's not about Egypt. The story of Exodus is about God. So too the book of Hosea, it's not about Hosea, it's not about Gomer, it's not about Israel, it's about God who graciously, lovingly, righteously, jealously redeems wayward people. And not because they're worthy or because they have any promise of fidelity in and of themselves. He loves wayward people because he's God. So at the same time that we say, I am Gomer, we also need to say just as loud, Jesus is my Hosea. Now, in case you weren't here last week, or perhaps you were checking your Facebook status during my sermon and the introduction, one of the great cardinal sins of Sunday morning, let me review a few things for you. We're studying the book of Hosea for a few reasons. First, I want us to feel the beauty and the weight of God's grace. Not just to know it, I want you to feel it. Secondly, the minor prophets offer a unique voice to us, even in the 21st century. Because third, the problem of spiritual adultery did not fade off of the scene when the prophetic era ended. And fourth, there are unbelievably beautiful shadows of the gospel in this book that you need to see and to savor. So this, this book helps us to hear the melody of the gospel through a different tune. To set the stage for you, this is a prophetic book, which means that God is delivering a message to his people. He's doing so through a man, a prophet named Hosea. He writes to the northern tribes. The nation of Israel is divided up into two nations, Judah in the south, generally more favorable, Israel in the north, generally more wicked. 
Hosea writes during a time of economic prosperity, of political expansion and geopolitical tension. The nation of Assyria to the east is rising in their power. The capital city of Nineveh is growing in strength and eventually God would use this pagan nation to sweep through Israel, to sack its capital, exile its people, and resettle the land with non-Israelites. The book attempts to warn about the problem of spiritual unfaithfulness. It attempts to warn a people that they are on a collision course with God and they need to wake up to what is happening. Despite all their prosperity, despite all the trappings of success, they're in trouble. Their culture is rotting from the inside out. And to make them feel that, like to wake them up, God uses the example of a prophet who marries a prostitute. That illustration is meant to make you wince. It's meant to make you feel the weight of what God feels. For them to realize what's really going on in their culture. So this, this language, this story, this metaphor is meant to help you feel the scandal of what God's grace really is. Last week we covered chapter one, now we're in chapters two and three, and what we're going to see here is God's posture toward his people. God's posture toward his people is that he pursues people with costly grace. In the same way that the cross is incredibly costly and was the means by which God pursued us, so too in the book of Hosea we see the costly pursuit by God for his people. It may be that one of the reasons that you're here this morning is because God is pursuing you. Perhaps you're here and there are all sorts of reasons that you found yourself in a church today and you need to know that all the circumstances of your life are not happening by accident. God may be very well pursuing you, and today may be the point where you realize that's actually happening, and I need to let him redeem me. Let me unpack this chapter with four key points. Point number one is this. We see God's gracious pursuit of his people in verses one to five. It's remarkable how chapter two begins. It starts out with love and grace. Hosea 1, say to your brothers, you are my people. This is coming out of verses 10 and 11 of chapter 1, where God is renewing his covenant. He's he's speaking ahead of where Israel really is. He's, He's telling them that I love you even in the midst of your waywardness. So he says, say to your sisters, you have received mercy. God is wooing his people, he's establishing that the foundation of his relationship, even his, as we'll see, discipline and his angst about where they are, it is owing to the fact that God loves his people. Everything that he does will emanate from this love. The tough tones of judgment that are gonna follow in chapter two won't eclipse this foundational loving reality. God loves his people. He will always love them. And that is what makes their waywardness so painful. 
If you're a parent with a wayward child, you know this feeling. Child's walked away or won't talk to you anymore. In the depth of your heart, you'd like to hate your child because that would make it easier. If I could just dislike them and hate them, then the pain would somehow be less. The problem inside the heart of every parent who has a wayward child is this, this internal sort of schizophrenia that happens where you love them and hate what they do, and as a result, out of that divided emotional matrix comes an enormous amount of pain. Same thing for a husband who loves a wayward wife or a wife who loves a wayward husband. The hurt of waywardness is rooted in the depth of love. So if you're here and you know this pain for a sibling, for a son, for a daughter, for a husband, for a wife, you need to know that God knows that pain. Your pain, in fact, is only real because God understands that pain. So when you cry out to him and say, God, do you know? Oh, he knows. Oh, does he know? So he affirms his love for his people despite their waywardness. And then in verse 2, after affirming his ultimate intention of love, God then pleads with Israel. Plead with your mother. Plead, for she is not my wife. The word plead used twice here in Hebrew poetry is a way of emphasizing the significance or the depth of what's intended with the word. It's, the word is connected to a, a serious appeal, even a, a legal proceeding. That's why it's noteworthy that the NIV has translated this as rebuke or New American Standard as contend. The idea is a tone that is desperate in its posture. So God is deeply grieved over what the people of Israel are doing, and all of the warnings of this text flow from God's love for them. So he, he strongly warns them. He's going to offer some strong rebukes, but he does so because he loves them. So listen, God not only does that, but good friends do that. If you have a friend who loves you enough to strongly warn you, you ought to be thankful for that brother or sister. I strongly warn my children because I love them. I'm not going to give your children the same kind of instruction, the same level of instruction as I do my own. And I've told my children often, I say these things to you because I love you, and nobody else will tell you this. They won't. And so if you're a child in a home and your parents are even now, your parents are now speaking into your life and you are resisting it and saying, why don't they just leave me alone? They can't leave you alone because they love you. To ask them to stop talking to you is in effect to tear their heart out and they can't do that for you. Instead, their love commends the speech, the tones, the heart of the pleading Verse 2 reminds us why God's actions are gracious. For she is not my wife and I am not her husband. The marriage is broken. In fact, it says that she put away her whoring from her face and her adultery from between her breasts. These are, this is language used throughout the Bible as a historical reference to sexual infidelity. Then God warns them as to what will happen if they refuse. Judgment is, is coming. 
verse three, Israel will be publicly exposed and she will be ashamed. I will strip, lest I strip her naked and make her as in the day she was born. She'll be vulnerable like a child. She'll be faced with hardship. I will make her like a wilderness and make her like a parched land in verse three. I will kill her with thirst. There will be consequences even upon her children. Upon their children, I will have no mercy because they are children of whoredom. So there's, there's generational consequences of what is taking place. Some of you know this, you've lived this, you've even today deal with the generational consequences of the sin issues of a home that you lived in. And you're trying to sever the pattern. The next verse, though, is incredibly important. It says, for their mother has played the whore, she who conceived them has acted shamefully, and then here comes one of the most important sentences in the book of Hosea. For she said, I will go after my lovers. This is giving voice, it's putting words in Gomer's mouth. What does an adulterous prostitute out of the idols of her heart say? Here's what she says. I will go after my lovers who give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax and my oil and my drink. Here we get the words of an idolatrous heart. You see, the people of Israel are not idolaters simply because they are bored with worshiping God. Rather, they pursue other gods for the same reason that you pursue other gods. They believe that those gods will give them what they want. Underneath idolatry, is the problem of broken desire. In order to understand the full picture of this, you, you have to know something about the false god called Baal. Baal was a central figure in the Canaanite worldview and culture. Along with another god, or goddess rather, called Asarte or Ashereth. If you read the Old Testament, you'll see it show up often Throughout the narrative, Baal and Ashereth, Baal and Ashereth. You might go, what is the deal with Baal and Ashereth? Let me tell you. Baal and Ashereth, or Asarte, were believed to be connected to the fertility of the earth. And if your livelihood is dependent in an agrarian model on crops growing and herds reproducing, fertility is everything. You don't live if the earth isn't fertile. You don't live if your cattle aren't fertile. So Baal was viewed as the male god connected with storms and rain, while Asarte was viewed as a female god associated with agriculture and trees and plants. And in the Canaanite worldview, fertility was believed to happen as it relates to their crops, in direct proportion to the fertility of the gods. So there was a connection. Fertile earth, fertile gods. Therefore, the worship of Baal not only involved the offering of particular substances and possessions, but the worship of Baal also involved rampant immorality. 
Sexual activity was therefore central to the worship of Baal. It was believed that by reenacting the drama of another world on earth, that it would thereby create fertility amongst the crops, amongst the animals, amongst the land. As a result, cultic prostitution was a part of the worship of Baal. A worshiper would select a cult prostitute and would say, I beseech the goddess of Asarte to favor you and Baal to favor me. You can imagine the deadly attraction of Baal. Here is this satanic strategy of combining two very powerful spiritual and physical elixirs. What I want and need and sexual pleasure and then make it normal. The crops need rain, Baal provides it. Baal's moved to act by sacrifice and sex. In order to get what we need, spiritual idolatry, sexual immorality combine in this deadly and addictive pattern of false worship. Can I just tell you that the enemy has not changed his strategy since 8th century B.C.? Paul addresses nearly the same problem in the city of Corinth as it relates to the temple of Diana and the Gnostic error where separ that separated physical activity, particularly sexual activity, from the condition of one's soul. And there were temple prostitutes connected with the worship of Diana. And to the church in 1 Corinthians 6, Paul writes very clear words about what it means for your body to be the temple of the Holy Spirit. He even uses Hosea-like language when he says, you are not your own, you were bought with a price. Colossians 3 and verse 5, after listing four sexually oriented sins along with covetous, Paul then says, which is idolatry. You see, idolatry and sexual morality go hand in hand. Even today, the enemy uses this deadly combination of what we think we want, what we believe we need, with the physical and emotional payoff that is supposed to come along with it. When you say something that you know is wrong and it comes out of an idolatrous heart, that wrong word came from what you wanted in your soul and what you thought that statement would give you. So your problem is not just what you say, the problem is what you want. That relationship with that person that you're flirting with in your mind and your heart, you need to know that the reason you're flirting with that idea is because you think that that person's going to give you what you presently lack. The problem isn't just the person, and the problem isn't just your thinking. The problem is your desire, your want is broken. Before you click on an image on your computer, you need to think, what in the world do I want? What do I want? Years ago, I read by, an article by Ed Welch who says this, so it is with modern idolatry as well. We don't want to be ruled by alcohol, drugs, sex, gambling, food, or anything. No, we want these substances or activities to give us what we want, good feelings, better self-image, a sense of power, or whatever our heart is craving. Idols, however, do not cooperate. 
rather than mastering our idols, we become enslaved by them and begin to look like them. Idolaters lose their spiritual moorings, controlled by the lure of sirens, that this is the way to feeling good, pleasure, belonging, and a better self-image, but they are doomed to be destroyed on the rocks. Friends, the issue of idolatry has not gone away. It's still a rampant problem and something that God is still pursuing his people and calling them out of. He is graciously pursuing people whose want is broken. And part of the reason why you may be here today is because God is going to pull back an idol of your heart and help you to see it more clearly. God pursues his people even though they are idolaters. Here's the second thing. The text shows us that God pursues his people through gracious discipline. The text tells us in verse six that God is going to do some things to try and stop this. Verse six says, therefore I will hedge up her way with thorns. Here we see the first aspect of divine discipline, which is divine resistance. God's going to make it difficult on her to sin. He says, I'm going to hedge up her way. I will build a wall against her so that she cannot find her paths. She shall pursue her lovers, but not overtake them. She shall seek them, but shall not find them. And then she will say, I will go and return to my first husband, for it was better for me than now. So the first way in which God enacts divine discipline is by making things more difficult upon us than what it would be. He, he, he offers resistance to us. But the problem is, is that her resistance is thwarted by virtue of her darkened understanding. She, she, she takes the blessings of God, verse 8, says she does not know that it was I who gave her the grain, the wine, the oil, who lavished on her silver and gold, which she, they used for Baal. So the idea is they have no idea that these good things now are used in a way that becomes idolatrous. Tim Keller identifies four particular idols that come out of a darkened mind and understanding. See if you resonate with these. If your idol is power, then your greatest nightmare is humiliation. People around you feel used, and one of your biggest problems is anger because power is an idol. If your idol is approval, your greatest nightmare is being rejected. People around you feel smothered, and one of your biggest problems is being a coward. If your idol is comfort, your greatest nightmare is stress or the demands on you. People around you feel neglected and one of your biggest problems or fears is that you might be bored because you have an idol called comfort. If your idol is control, your greatest nightmare is uncertainty. People around you feel condemned because you're so intense and your greatest spiritual issue is worry because you have an idol called control. As I went, walked through those, if there was anything within you that said, ooh, that, that's, I testified of that one, you need to know that is a gift from God and a part of his divine resistance, and that is no guarantee that it's going to be there the next day or the next day or the next day. Part of God's divine discipline is to offer resistance in the form of guilt 
maybe even in the form of this message. What's more, there's not only divine resistance, but there's divine removal. In verses 9 to 13, we see the Lord taking more active and drastic steps. There are six I will statements that are all connected to the discipline of God. In verse 9, God intends to take back the supplies from the people that they trusted in. He's going to remove all of these things. I will take back my grain in its time and my wine in its season. I will take away my wool and my flax, which were to cover her nakedness. The idea is that you're going to trust in your job, taking away your job. Trust in your high position, gone. Trust in your ideal family, gone. Trust in your sense of financial security, gone, gone, gone. God removes those things often in order to be able to kick the legs right out from underneath us so we'll finally look up and realize, I'm not running my life very well. Some of you are right there today. So he removes privacy, he removes patience, he removes happiness, he removes possessions. In fact, verse 10 says that God will expose her actions publicly. She can't hide in the dark anymore. Verse 11, her celebrations and her merriment that she used to sort of suppress her negative feelings. The party is over, it's gonna stop. Verse 12, the things that she thought she earned, God's going to remove them. And verse 13, even the favor of God will be removed because she will be punished for her pagan worship. I will punish her for the feast days of the Baals when she burned offerings to them and adorned herself with her ring and jewelry and went after her lovers and forgot me, declares the Lord. Look, this is no different a message than what we hear in the book of Hebrews when the writer says this, have you forgotten the exhortation that he addresses to you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. So you may be here today and you're experiencing divine resistance, or you may have just recently found divine removal to be part of your world, and you need to know, first and foremost, that God loves you enough that he's not simply letting you have your own way. Have the idols of your heart gotten the better of you? Has the Lord sent you a message by virtue of some sort of divine resistance? Maybe even as I'm talking now, you're starting to put the pieces together and you're like, oh my word, of course, of course. You begin to see the picture. You need to know God loves you enough to make your life tough. So don't resist his divine discipline another day. Sometimes I'm asked, how do you know if the Lord is disciplining you? How do you know? It's a really good question, not an easy answer. Because at one level, divine discipline can happen in nearly anything, whether it's your fault or not. In the same way that lots of things for us are good to do and to embrace, even when they aren't necessarily caused by us, or have a direct relationship to specific sin in our life, general discipline can create spiritual growth in any circumstances. But, but the question usually comes from the person who wonders, how do I know this happened in my life? How do I know if this situation is directly connected to a sin issue, like this happened and it's connected to something I've done wrong? How do I know? And my answer is, oh, you know. Yeah, you know. Because neither God nor you benefit when you don't know. And when that does happen, remember, it is a sign of God's love for you that that discipline happened. 
So we have divine discipline as a part of God's gracious pursuit. And now, third, we see this gracious hope that moves in in verse 14. The text now makes this beautiful redemptive turn and it shifts from warning to wooing. Listen to verse 14. Therefore, it says, behold, I will allure her. This is crazy. God has just talked about stripping her naked and leaving her in a wilderness. He's warned her about shutting down all the feasts, and now he says, I will allure her. I will speak, bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. The word allure is strong enough to suggest enticement, even seduction. God's making the emotional case for his people to return, and his strategy is to speak tenderly to her, often in the Bible used in romantic contexts. Notice here that it is God who is making the first move. God's going to seek to allure her way before she's ever allurable. He's going to speak tenderly to her when she deserves harshness. God is going to initiate his love, and is that not how God has acted not only in the 8th century B.C., but also how he acted at a place called Golgotha? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. This is who God is. This is what God does. He offers gracious hope because he is the one whose posture towards wayward people is, why don't you come home? Why don't you see where you're going and awaken your heart in order so that you might come and be done with your idols that are destroying your life? Verses 15 to 23 offers this this beautiful picture of what God plans to do for his people. These promises of blessing, they're all connected to these I will statements. God will make places with bad memories in verse 15, like the, the valley of Achor. He'll make that bad memory a place of redemption. He'll take your high school reunion and he'll show you how beautiful you've been transformed. He'll take bad memories of the past and help you to be reminded that God, by his mercy, bought you out of that. Verse 15, God will restore them to their first love, like being delivered out of Egypt. Verse 16, he will renew his relationship with his people. Verse 17, he'll wipe the temptation toward idolatry even out of their experience. Look at verse 17, it's remarkable. I will remove the names of the bales from her mouth that they shall remember, be remembered by name no more. What's the name of that God we used to worship? What's his name? I just, I, it's been so long ago. I just, I don't even, I can't even think of the name anymore. Here's what God has the ability to do. He can take 15 years of bad marriage. He can transform five years of marriage so that the 15 years got shrunk down to about three weeks in your mind and heart. You could have a long legacy of a bad run in some sin issue, and because of the freedom that you found, the past has shrunk, not only in its historical hold on you, but also in its emotional power to define you. Verse 19 is remarkable. God, or verse 18 says that God will make a covenant of peace with his people, and then verse 19, God will betroth himself to his people with a bride price, I will betroth you to me forever, and I will betroth you to me in righteousness and justice, in steadfast love and mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness. Those are things that only God can lay on the table. 
Gomer's not bringing that to the table. Israel's not bringing that to the table. You didn't bring that to the table. It's God who owns faithfulness and God who owns justice and God who owns righteousness and God who owns love and God who loves mercy and he's the one who puts that down as the dowry price for you and says, I'll take that one and here's my price and you brought nothing to the table. It's him. God redeems wayward people because he is God. And over and over and over, our redemption proves that we can rely not on our ability, but on God's ability. Oh, friends, if our faithfulness was dependent upon our fidelity to God's covenant, we would be lost. Our only hope, both past and present and future, is for God to keep being God. Just think of this. God allures his people. He makes promises to wayward people. He restores his people. He makes a covenant with his people. And he is the one whose glory is then displayed when it says, and you shall know the Lord. Because the heavens, in verse 21, and the earth will see what's happening. The earth will answer the grain, the wine, the oil, and they shall answer Jezreel, and I will sow her for myself in the land, and I will have mercy on no mercy, and I will say to not my people, you are my people, and you will say, you are my God. All of heaven and earth will look at what God has done to his people and say, that's unbelievable. Which is why Paul said, from him and to him are all things to him be glory forever and ever. Amen. So there's a gracious pursuit, gracious discipline, gracious hope, and then finally we end here in chapter three with this gracious picture. Just to be sure that this idea of God's faithful love is deeply embedded in our hearts, we go back to Hosea. And the Lord said to me, verse one, go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress. Even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. And then we see verse two. It's a stunning moment. So I bought her. This is the second time he's bought her. First was when he paid a dowry, no doubt. And I'm sure it was costly. And now here he is again, we don't know why she's needing to be redeemed, needing to be bought. It could be that her prostitution has made her the possession of another, and he's seeking to liberate her from some wicked pimp. It could be that she's so indebted to whatever has been her lifestyle that she's accumulated some sort of financial holding over her head. We don't know what it is, but what we do know is that when she's being auctioned off, her husband steps into the arena, and as the bids begin to fly, he says, five shekels. Someone else, I'll give six, seven, eight, says her husband. Nine, ten, eleven says Hosea, 12, 13, 14, 15, 15, and a homer, and a lethic of barley sold. And she comes home? It's, it's unbelievable. And God wants you to feel the weight of that and to realize that's, that's what God's done for Israel. And that's what God does through 
the beautiful work of Christ on the cross. His bid was the blood of Jesus. And then look what happens. He says, you must dwell as mine for many days and you will not play the whore or belong to another man. In other words, I didn't buy you so you could be a better prostitute. I bought you so you could be my wife. Jesus didn't buy you so you could be an idolater. He bought you so you could love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And so, when, when you face an idol this week, bring that to the table. When an image says, why don't you click on this, or a relationship emerge, and you think, I'm gonna ask the next more in-depth, more relational, personal question, or when you're tempted to say something that comes out of a heart because of what you want, you bring that idol to this auction block and remind your idol, I was bought with a price, and I was bought with a really high price. Because Jesus doesn't just save you from your sins, he saves you to belong to him. And then he sets the people on a path for restoration after the children of Israel will dwell many days without king, prince, without sacrifice, pillar, ephod, or household gods. Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord. Their God and David, their king, they shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. There's coming a day when this will be true. So what do we do with this text? First, let me ask you that if you're not yet a follower of Jesus to consider the fact that God may very well be calling you to turn from your waywardness and come to Jesus today. That's where I I came from my waywardness, Jesus bought me, and dear friend, no matter where you've been or what you've done, Jesus can begin the process of making your life new today if you'll just simply come out of the shame in the closet of your own sort of self-deception and say, I am Gomer. If you're a follower of Jesus, contemplate the way in which God rescued you from the slave market of your own idolatry so that when idols present themselves this next week, that you can call them for what they are and you can crush them. You may be here and this sermon has helped to reveal idols that have taken a hold of your heart and life and today you ought to confess them and ask the Lord for forgiveness. And this also means that because of the beauty of our redemption in Christ, we can, we can be a celebratory and joyful people because Jesus paid it all. Or as the book of Ephesians says, God, who is rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us who are in Christ. For by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not of yourselves, it's not of works, so that no gomer can boast. It is a gift of God, so no gomer can say, look what I did. Lord Jesus, we pray now that you would take this book and drive it deep 
Let it create great joy because of the redemption that is ours in Jesus. And let it also create conviction as we consider the ways in which idols still plague us. We thank you for the beauty of what it is that you have done for us in and through Christ. We thank you that, Lord, we have no hope apart from you. And so we come humble, we come repentant, we come broken, and we come joyfully because Christ is all we need. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.